This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Welcome to the library. I'm Troy Swanson. I'm one of the librarians. And this is uh, an event that's part of our One Book, One College series on um, uh, Roxana Sabari's Between Two Worlds. Uh, there's a number of themes that we're discussing from that book and a couple issues, many issues that she raises in the book. And one of them uh, that I always found most compelling was uh, during her time in Evan Prison, um, the connection she makes with the uh, other women who are prisoners and uh, their stories and the stories they tell as they're trying to seek empowerment and to better their society. Um, so along those lines, one of the themes we wanted to explore, a broader theme, was the ideas of violence against women and especially looking at violence against women on a, on a more global perspective. And uh, there's some issues in the book that um, uh, Ms. Savari brings up. By the way, November 8th and 9th, uh, Roxana Savari will be on campus speaking about her book. Um, she'll be doing a book signing. The events are free, and they'll be in the M building. Um, you can buy the books if you want to read the book ahead of time. Um, they're for sale in the bookstore at a decent price, and we have copies here that you can check out if you would like. Uh, so today's event, as I said, focus on um, violence against women, on the international perspective, and we are very happy to welcome Jessica Teemer here. Uh, she's spoken here before in the past, last spring, so we wanted to bring her back uh, to, to broaden out her discussion. Um, Jessica's from Pillars, which is a... Um, uh, multifaceted social service agency. They do all kinds of things uh, throughout our region, so not just the southwest suburbs, but throughout Chicagoland. Um, her, she is outreach coordinator and community educator, so her job is to do things like this. It's community teaching. She works with um, some of their programs uh, to do uh, educational services with people that they serve, and she also comes to places like here, like at our library, and offers uh, information, her perspective, and uh, discussions um, on a range of topics. So we are very fortunate to have her, and with that, a round of applause. Here's Jessica. Thank you, everyone, for coming. everybody. Thanks for coming today. Um, so today, since we're talking about an international perspective, it's kind of a huge topic. Um, and I had to think about how can we break this down and kind of cover some of the things that go on. Um, you losing the PowerPoint here? Um, so the way that I decided to break it down is to look at over a woman's lifetime, um, different things that she's kind of, ex violence that she might be exposed to throughout her life, throughout the world. Um, and even though we're going to kind of look at them through that lens, they could definitely happen at any time during a woman's life. So we'll start off even before girls are born. Um, they're already in danger. Because in a lot of parts of the world, um, for a variety of reasons that we're going to talk about a little bit more, males are just given more value, and so female fetuses are aborted. Um, it's kind of one of the things that's happened now that we have that technology to find out the gender early in a pregnancy. We see this, it's called sex-selective abortion. Um, it's kind of widespread in China, India, Pakistan, Korea, Taiwan, the Caucasus region, um, which are kind of on that border between um, Europe and Asia. Some of it is because of cultural preference for a son. Um, they're considered an asset because they can work and bring in money to the family. They can support the family, the parents, when they're older and can't work anymore. And they can inherit. 
in a lot of places women cannot inherit. Daughters are seen as a liability. Um, in some parts of the world, fathers need to provide a dowry. And also when they're seen as married, uh, when they're married, they're seen as belonging to the other family. Uh, we see that even in our, our culture where the father gives the woman away, right, to her husband. Um, it's seen literally as a possession, that she literally belongs to that family. So then any income that she, ha that she is able to produce would belong to that family. Moving on to when she's an infant, um, some of the things that happen to infants are infanticide, which we're going to talk about, abandonment, deprivation, isolation, malnourishment, medical neglect, a lack of status right from the beginning, and inability to inherit. So female infanticide is the practice of killing newborn infants or neglecting them to death soon after birth. Female infanticide is happening on a large scale to baby girls in China, India, Taiwan, Taiwan Singapore, Japan, the Balkans, and the Caucasus. Uh, this is just a short excerpt from um, a writer. Her name is Zinran Zhu. She describes visiting a peasant family in the Yumeng area of Shandong province. The wife was giving birth. We had scarcely sat down in the kitchen, she writes, when we heard a moan of pain from the bedroom next door. The cries from the inner room grew louder and abruptly stopped. There was a low sob, and then a man's gruff voice said accusingly, useless thing. Suddenly I thought I heard a slight movement in the slop's pail behind me. To my absolute horror, I saw a tiny foot poking out of the pail. The wood midwife must have dropped that tiny baby alive into the slop's pail. I nearly threw myself at it, but the two policemen who'd accompanied me there held my shoulders in a firm grip. Don't you move. You can't save it. It's too late. But that's murder, and you're the police. The foot was still now. The policeman held on to me for a few more minutes. Doing a baby girl is not a big thing around here, an older woman said, trying to comfort me. That's a living child, I said, in a shaking voice, pointing at the slop's pail. It's not a child, she corrected me. It's a baby girl, and we can't keep it. Around these parts, you can't get by without a son. Girl babies don't count. How large of a scale is this happening on? Well, we know that naturally, for about every 100 girls that are born, throughout history, 103 to 106 baby boys are born. The reason for that are baby boy infants are not as sturdy. Um, they don't tend to live all the time. <laughs> they're, they're more susceptible. Um, so by the time that these children grow to marrying age, it's about the same. So we know that naturally there is a slightly, slightly more men at birth. Um, but you can see from this chart, I don't know how well you guys can see the numbers, but in China it's gotten up to the point where there are 100 and, it's actually up to 124 now, um, baby boys for every baby girl. It's the same in India. Um, these are some of the other uh, countries, Armenia, Georgia, South Korea, uh, Serbia, Belarus, Bosnia, Cyprus, Hong Kong, and Singapore. So the current ratios are in China and India, I'm sorry, it's 125 boys to baby girls, to 100 baby girls. In Armenia, it's 120. In Azer, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It's 120 to 100. Georgia, it's 120 to 100. Taiwan, 110 to 100. Serbia, 108. Macedonia, also 108 boys for every 100 girls. 
the scariest thing um, is that in China and India, this trend continues to increase. It's actually decreased in South Korea, um, which is encouraging. I mean, hopefully that, that will spread. Um, the other thing that's kind of scary is that it's actually happening more in regions where there's more education and more money. Sometimes we think that we're more civilized if we have more education or more money, but um, unfortunately with this trend, that's just not the case. By 2020, there will be an estimated 40 million what they call bare branches. This is already happening so widespread, they actually have a term for it. Um, and those are men of marrying age, right, like 20s and 30s, um, in both China and in India. So how many extra men that means is 80 million. But what that would mean is the entire population of males that age in the United States and, the and twice that population of Europe's three largest countries of males combined. Uh, just this month, the Council of Europe um, has submitted a plan um, that would include some legislation to prevent the disclosure of, of a fetus's sex because this has become such a wide-scale problem. So what happens when we have so many more men? Well, there's a high rate of mixed marriage in formerly homogenous societies, and we see that going on right now in Korea. It's about 11%. Um, I'm part of a mixed marriage here. <laughs> I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Um, however, when a society goes from being very homogenous to having a lot of mixed marriages, it can cause some social instability. Um, these kids are right now being treated as outcasts, and there's a lot of really negative names that they're called. There's also higher rates of migration. Um, some more people leave the country because they're pursuing mates. It also drives up the price of dowries. The other thing that we see historically when there's an imbalance is there's more violence. Okay, so I'll talk about that a little bit while we try to get back on the screen. Um, we see historically that there's more violence. There's a rise in violence when there are more men than there are women. Um, all violent crime, um, also theft. Um, there's more rape, there are more, there's more prostitution, there are more bride kidnappings. Um, the other thing that we're more prone to is war. When populations get unbalanced, the world has a way of rebalancing itself. Um, and we've seen this throughout history, that when there are more men, there tends to be war. So when we think of 80 million of these extra young men um, in two of the largest countries in the world, it's kind of scary to think about, right? Uh, when women are children, they may not have the opportunity to get an education, or they may be given very little education. They may be exposed to child labor. They may suffer from female genital mutilation or cutting or child prostitution, physical abuse, neglect, grooming, and luring. Um, for people who are unfamiliar with those terms, those have to do with sexual abuse. Um, and they're susceptible to sexual abuse, incest, and molestation. Thank <laughs> you. 
Um, female genital mutilation comprises all procedures that involve partial or total removal of the external female genitalia or other injury to the female genital organs for no medical reasons. Um, and this is the thing we're going to focus on for this age group um, because I think it says a lot about a society when they literally try to cut away a woman's sexuality. It's kind of a big deal. Um, and if we get the slide back up, I'll show you. But the equivalent in men, you know, they, they, they call it female circumcision in the parts of the world where they do it. But it's not equivalent to a male circumcision because male circumcision doesn't actually cut into the sex organs themselves at all. Female circumcision um, actually cuts away the entire clitoris in the most um, kind of the smallest version of that that they do. And then in the more extreme, which, which would be the equivalent of cutting off half of a man's penis. The more extreme version of it that they do would be the equivalent of cutting off a man's entire penis, two inches inside and part of his scrotal sac. And I think that if this, this happens to 6,000 girls every single day, and I think that if that was going on in the world where they were cutting off 6,000 penises a day, there probably would be more outrage. Um, so it shows us definitely some gender inequality there. So there's four, four classifications of what are considered female genital mutilation. They also now are calling it female genital cutting. Um, they're using cutting because they think it takes some of the stigma out of it for women who have had this procedure done on them. There's one called the clitoridectomy, which is partial or total removal of the clitoris. Excision, partial or total, total removal of the clitoris and the labia minora. Um, infibulation, which is narrowing of the vagina opening through creating a covering seal. So this is literally where they sew their vagina shut. Um, and that's to try to keep them a virgin until they're married and then their husband will cut them open. Um, the problem with a lot of these procedures are that there tends to be need for follow-up surgeries, for follow-up treatments. Um, there tends to be later cutting because when you're cutting there, a lot of it kind of seals together. It causes a lot of health problems. which we'll get to in one second. Um, but, so these are some of the other, I, I mentioned that it, the difference between male and female circumcision is that it, it, doesn't, affect, it doesn't attack the sex organ. Um, and while there's debate about the medical benefits of male circumcision, I know that everyone is aware of that, but there is debate in the medical community whether that's beneficial anymore. Um, but unlike female circumcision, there's no evidence that it does long-term damage to health. And male circumcision is not intended to deprive a man of sexual pleasure. Um, part of the reason that they do this it's because they think if they don't, a woman will be very promiscuous, that she will masturbate chronically, that she'll become a prostitute, that it'll somehow make her a lesbian. Um, so actually women that haven't had it done, it's very hard for them to get married in these regions of the world. Um, as I said, it has no health benefits to women. It harms girls and women in many ways. It involves removing and damaging healthy and normal female genital tissue and interferes with the natural functioning of women's and girls' bodies. The immediate complications are severe pain, shock, hemorrhage, infection, urine retention, open sores, failure to heal, injury to surrounding genital tissue, psychological consequences, and even death. The lifelong consequences are chronic bladder and urinary tract infections, 
keloid, which is a condition where there's excessive scar tissue, cysts and abscesses, ulcers, infertility, an increased risk of childbirth complications, increased risk of newborn death. There's also an increased susceptibility to sexually transmitted infections. Um, the ones that they've done studies and proved the difference is that there has been more susceptibility to both herpes and HIV. As I said, they're susceptible to repeated um, attacks on their genitals because it doesn't always heal right. Inter intercourse can be painful, and they have slow and painful menstruation and urination. So why is it practiced? To control or reduce female sexuality, to reduce the chance of the female having sex before marriage or outside of the marriage because it would dishonor the family, so that older men won't have to worry that they can't match their young wife's sex drive. In a lot of these cultures, very young women marry a lot older men. The false belief that it enhances fertility, that's what they believe within these cultures, but we know from studies that it actually does the opposite. The false belief that females who don't undergo it um, will become very overly sexualized. And to maintain social cohesion. A lot of the people who perform these procedures actually are women. They do it to their daughters, to their nieces, to their granddaughters, because they're afraid their daughter won't be able to get married, and in their society she can't, she can't survive without marriage. So where does it happen? Most commonly in the western, eastern, and northeastern regions of Africa. So you can kind of see on this map all the areas that are colored. It also happens in Asia and the Middle East. It happens in some small numbers in North America, Latin America, and Europe. There actually was a case in the news just last week where a father did this to his infant daughter in the United States. These are the percentages of women in the dark red the women that have had the procedure themselves between the ages of 15 and 49, and the lighter color, the women between 15 and 49 who have had daughters that have had the procedure. So as you can see, some of the numbers are really high. In Guinea, 99%. In Egypt, 97%. In Mali, 92%. In North Sudan, 90%. Um, Eritrea, 89%. Ethiopia, 80%. Burkina Faso, 77%. Um, and then they kind of go down from there. Here's some more of the statistics. Um, as you can see, in some areas, it's just so high. While women are often the ones who are performing this procedure, they're also the ones who are speaking out for change. This is a picture of, her name is Maya Muna Treor. She's the president of a local women's association, and she's played a pivotal role in banning this in her village in Senegal. FGM is recognized internationally as a violation of human rights. It reflects the deep-rooted inequality between the sexes and constitutes an extreme form of discrimination against women. It's nearly always carried out on minors. Uh, the average age is between 18 months and 15 years old. The practice violates a person's rights to health, security, and physical integrity, the right to be free from torture and cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, and in some cases, when the procedure results in death, the right to life. Uh, now we're going to watch a little clip. Um, it's a woman who actually has become a social worker. She's working to become a social worker in her country in Africa um, who did not get it, and she'll talk about her experience, and she follows a young woman who is about to have the procedure.
Millions of girls make their transition to womanhood through a rite of passage. Traditions are very strong in the culture and have a profound effect on the lives of girls. Girls like 14-year-old Mary, who is preparing for her ceremonial cutting, and for Alice, who is in her early 20s and has decided not to follow the requirements of culture. Even though this sacred tradition has been passed on from generation to generation and has done so for thousands of years. In the days before her final journey to womanhood, Mary and her community have many preparations to tend to. There's a lot of gender imbalance in Pokot. Like in Pokot, the women don't have any possession. They have no possession even in the community. It's like they are just zero. Because if a man comes and asks, is there anybody here? They, they say, there's nobody here. Because if it's only the woman, she doesn't believe that she's somebody. So there's really a lot of imbalance in this community. Uh, the, the women don't have any position. Alice is studying to be a social worker and does work for a local health project. She is constantly reminded of the cultural myths behind the tradition of female genital cutting. Especially I want to fight against FGM, this female circumcision. Some believe that your firstborn will not survive if you are not circumcised. It has to die because you have not linked yourself with the ancestors. You have to shed blood to link yourself with the ancestors so you cannot get blessings from the ancestors. Alice joins the young who are celebrating girls who have recently been cut. These girls are easy to catch sight of with their painted faces and ornaments. When it comes to the time of circumcision, you are supposed to withstand all the pain. If in case that uh, you just cry or you show any, any sign of being coward, even shaking your hands or even your eyelids, they declare that you, you are coward. They believe that if you don't get circumcised, your clitoris will grow very long, it will sweep the ground. These are the things, the needs in the society. Countless women make a living as circumcisers. They take pride in their trade. Refusing to follow tradition comes at a high price. When I got married, of course my, my husband knew that I was not circumcised, but uh, I came to realize that there was some part of him which really didn't want to accept me the way I am. 
After meeting with him for around one and a half years, he started telling me that insisting that I should go and circumcise. He started abusing me and many days like when he got drunk he was just saying that oh you just a kid, oh you just what just mocking even in front of my children. The community keeps a close watch on Alice. They just want to, they, they're just watching to see any negative that I'm doing, that things like prostitution, they're waiting to see that, oh, I'm so and so and so and so, so that they can just rule out from there that uh, it's just because she's not circumcised that she's doing a lot of prostitution. <laughs> It is the cut that transforms a girl into a woman. These women, ranging from 10 to 15 years of age, are now ready for marriage. Most will marry men many times their age. The ceremonial cutting is a cultural practice and is performed among people of many different religious faiths. As a part of the preparations for Mary's ceremony, rituals must be followed. Mary's mother has her head and eyebrows shaved several times during the days before the actual cutting. In many cultures, the hair of women is a very potent sexual symbol. So stripping a woman or a girl of her hair is a symbolic way of stripping them of their natural sexuality. In Mary's community, trees are very scarce, and sacrificing a tree in honor of the girl is considered very special. The community find a very straight tree, which is a symbol of the straight and special path the girl is to follow during her adult life. Mary wears a necklace made of goat intestines, which is meant to strengthen her. The men have their own rituals to observe. It is forbidden for them to take part in most of the rituals the women perform during the preparation and actual cutting ceremony. Instead, the men prepare feasts in the bush to celebrate that a girl soon will be transformed into a woman. <laughs> Blood is shed and consumed many times in the community during the days before the cutting. As Mary's celebration day draws closer, 
there is tension and excitement in the air. But Mary withdraws more and more. The celebration day is dawning. A bed is being prepared for Mary so she can rest after the ceremonial cutting. Mary waits until it is time. By the hand of her mother, Mary's genitals are sliced off. All around a celebration erupts in honor of the child now a woman. While Mary is left to cope with her pain. Alone in the dark. Those who are doing it, they're just doing it out of illiteracy. They don't really understand. Because myself, I believe that if these girls could be educated and really understand what it means, because out of circumcision, there's nothing, there's no benefit that you get. It's just a problem. <laughs> girls every day right now this is going on in the world um, and that's why I wanted to show um, the documentary I know it took up a little bit of time but I think it's important to get a first-hand perspective whenever we can um, so that's going on even in a young girl's life that's before she's even a teenager usually um, because it's you know before she's marrying age because she's not marriageable until that happens so then if we move on in the life cycle until she's a teenager, women are teenagers, some of the things that they're exposed to are rape or coerced sex, forced marriage, bride kidnapping, virginity testing, um, 
And virginity testing, I mean, we know as, as, as recent as Princess Diana that that's still part of the culture with royal families, that they have to get a virginity test before they can marry into the family. So once again, these supposed right civilized societies, um, how civilized are we? <laughs> Um, lack of information about sex, their anatomy and sexual health, others controlling their sexuality and sexual orientation, trafficking and prostitution. Um, for this age group, we're going to take a look at human trafficking. Human trafficking is the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or recipient of persons by the threat or use of kidnapping, force, fraud, deception, or coercion or by the giving or receiving of unlawful payments or benefits to achieve the consent of a person having control over another person. So what that means is that people sell people into it, and oftentimes it's their parents. Um, and it's for the purpose of sexual exploitation or forced labor. Human trafficking is also the legal use of a variety of means to force an individual, the trafficked person, to relinquish his or her personal freedom for the profit of another person, the trafficker, and is considered modern-day slavery. Um, this is a story of someone who was trafficked. Her name is Nika. She's just a little girl. Um, she was brought to a rescue. So this is a story from one of the rescue staff. One of the brightest, most inquisitive, and energetic children at the rescue children's home is tiny Nika. She's smart, quick-witted, and is fond of telling everyone she meets, I go to school. Her preschool teacher reports that she's attentive and engaged. It's hard to believe this same little girl who the police brought in was listless and lethargic. The city's shopping entertainment districts are awash with lights and pedestrian traffic. Shoppers look for bargains and fill the streets with music and laughter. The merchants and shopkeepers are delighted with the ring of their cash registers. But these are also lucrative locations for professional begging rings. Nika was a part of one such ring. You might ask, how could such a tiny girl be part of a begging ring? Nika was born far from the city in a small and very poor village. Her parents sold her, and she became the baby in what they call a family of professional beggars. She was especially valuable and was used as a prop by adults who posed as her mother or father in what was exposed later as a performance for financial gain. Each night, the adult beggars would find a place to sit with Nika cradled in their arms, Hard to be filled with pity as strangers looked upon the poor mother and her sick child. But Nika wasn't sick. She was being regularly dosed with narcotic sedatives to make her drowsy, lethargic, and compliant. Some nights, the adult beggars would carry her around looking for people who would give them money. They had their roles rehearsed perfectly, and with slow and deliberate shuffles, they would pass, just, pass and pause just long enough for passersby to feel both uncomfortable and obliged to help the sickly baby. Dana, who's a volunteer there, recalls the time when Nika came in. She was incredibly lethargic, she was slow to move, and overall she did not look well. I actually thought we'd have to do some testing, as she appeared to have developmental delays. But as just a few days passed, we all came to realize there was nothing slow or lethargic about this little girl. We now know it was the result of drugs that were still present in her tiny body. And I use that example because I think when we think of tra trafficking, we think about sex trafficking, um, and definitely that's, I think we'll get to the statistic, I think it's about 85%. Um, but also a lot of children um, are trafficked to be part of these begging rings. There are currently an estimated 2.5 million people around the world in forced labor at any given time as a result of trafficking. 
161 countries are affected by human trafficking by being either a source, transit, or destination. People are reported to be trafficked from 127 countries and to be exploited in 137 countries. It affects every continent and every economy. The majority of tracking victims, trafficking victims are between 18 and 24 years of age. An estimated 1.2 million children are trafficked each year. 95% of the victims experience physical or sexual violence during the trafficking. 43% are used for forced commercial, commercial sex, sexual exploitation, of whom 98% are women and girls. 32% of the victims are, are, are used for forced economic exploitation, of whom 56% are women and girls. So who are the traffickers? 52% of those recruiting victims are men, 42% are women, and 6% of cases involve both men and women. In at least 54% of the cases, the victim knew the person who recruited or sold them into trafficking. The majority of suspects involved in, tra in the trafficking process are nationals of the countries where it's occurring. The profits are staggering. Once again, we might wonder how, is, how or why is this happening? The estimated global annual profits made from exploitation of all traffic forced labor are $31.6 billion. Um, but in the year of 2006, there were only 5,808 prosecutions and 3,160 convictions in the whole world. So that means that for every 800 people that were trafficked, only one person was convicted. So here are the, some of the things that you should know. The number of slaves in the world today because of trafficking is greater than it's ever been in history. Approximately 75 to 80% of human trafficking is for sex. It's estimated that 30,000 people die each year from abuse, disease, torture, and neglect while being trafficked for sex. 80% of those enslaved are under 24, and some are as young as six. A human trafficker can receive up to 2,000% profit from a girl who's trafficked for sex. The pimp can often turn around and sell her again for a greater price because he's trained her and broken her spirit, which saves future buyers the hassle. A 2003 study in the Netherlands found that on average, a single sex slave earned her pimp at least $250,000 a year. The highest ranking source countries for human trafficking include Belarus, the Republic of Moldova, the Russian Federation, Ukraine, Albania, Bulgaria, Lithuania, Romania, China, Thailand, and Nigeria. Today's slaves are more cost effective for the trafficker than they've ever been in history. The population explosion has created an abundant ongoing supply of victims, and globalization has made people more vulnerable and more easily enslaved. Sex traffickers often recruit children because they're young, innocent, and more unsuspecting than adults. And there's also a higher demand for young victims. Tra traffickers can target their victims on the telephone, the internet, through their friends, at the mall, and in after-school programs. Um, one thing that I'd like to note about the trafficking, a lot of times they don't include women who've been prostituted um, because they, unless they're forced into the prostitution. Um, I, one of the jobs that I do is work with prostituted women. Um, I do a group that's an alternative to prison sentencing. And I can tell you from my work with them that no one is in prostitution because they want to be. 
no one. Um, they all feel forced, whether it's to keep a roof over their children's head or to feed themselves. Um, most women who prostitute started before the age of 16. It's like 94%. Um, almost all of them were sexually abused as children. Uh, they make the decision to do that because they feel if they're going to be sexually exploited, they may as well be in control of it. Um, also, people think, I think, that prostitutes prostitute in order to get money for drugs. Most women actually start using the drugs in order to cope with prostituting. So it actually kind of happens in the reverse in reality. And not all of them use drugs at all. So we move on to young adults. Um, they're susceptible to false imprisonment, maltreatment and abuse during their imprisonment. Um, and probably most of you have read the book um, that kind of this lecture series is about, and so that talks a lot about that, the um, Between Two Worlds. Um, they're susceptible to rape, including date rape and wartime rape. They are denied the choice of their marriage partner or a choice about their sexual orientation. I shouldn't say a choice about that because that sounds wrong. <laughs> a choice to live with how they were born, their sexual orientation. Let me rephrase that. Um, they're susceptible to becoming mail order brides. There are dow dowry-related deaths and honor killings. So what are honor killings? Um, thousands of women are killed by their families every year in the name of honor. These murders frequently go unreported. The perpetrators are rarely punished. In most countries, if they're prosecuted, which is like less than 5%, they serve between six months and three years for murdering these women. Um, most of them occur in countries where the concept of women as um, kind of the showpiece of the family's honor is kind of accepted. So what are some of the offenses that can quote unquote justify these honor killings? If they have premarital sex, if they flirt in public, if they cheat, if they ask to choose their own husband or refuse the arranged marriage, if they ask for a divorce, it could be something as simple as failing to serve a meal on time. They could be put to death for being raped. Anything that could be perceived, not even necessarily is, but could be perceived as dishonor to the family. So really this gives the men, whether it's their fathers, their husbands, their brothers, a lot of power because if they don't behave the way they think they should, it's pretty easy um, to say that they did anything. It just has to be something that's a dishonor to the family and to have them killed. Honor killings are committed worldwide under many different names, but they've been documented in recent years in Bangladesh, Great Britain, Brazil, Ecuador, Egypt, India, Israel, Italy, Canada, Palestine, Afghanistan, Jordan, Pakistan, Morocco, Sweden, Turkey, Uganda, Iraq, Iran, the Balkans, and the United States. So there's a story that's fairly well known about honor killings. Um, her name is Samina Imran. She was a 28-year-old married woman who was seeking a divorce after 10 years of marriage. Her family opposed the divorce and considered her seeking a divorce to be a shame to the family's honor. She arrived at the Lahore law offices of the sisters Hina Jelani and Asma Jahangir. She had engaged Jelani a few days earlier because she wanted a divorce from her violent husband. Samina settled in a chair across the desk from the lawyer. Sultana, Samina's mother, entered five minutes later with a male companion named Habib or Ramna. Samina half rose in greeting. 
Habib then grabbed Samina and put a pistol to her head. The first bullet entered near her eye, and she fell. There was no scream. There was dead silence. I don't even think she knew what was happening, Jelani said. The killer stood over her body and fired again. Jelani reached for the alarm button as the gunman and Sultana left. Her mother never even bothered to look whether she was dead. The aftermath of the murder was very revealing. Samina's father, who was the president of the Chamber of Commerce in Peshawar, filed the complaint with the police against the lawyers. The local clergy issued a fatwa, which is a religious ruling, against both the lawyers and for helping her to get a divorce, and money was promised to anyone who killed them. The Peshawar High Court eventually threw out the father's suit, but no one was ever arrested for Samina's death, and none of the of Pakistan's political leaders condemned the attack. Her case received a great deal of publicity, but frequently honor killings are virtually ignored by community members. In many cases, the women are buried in unmarked graves and all records of their existence are just wiped out. Women accused by family members of bringing dishonor to their families are rarely given the opportunity to prove their innocence. In many countries where the practice is condoned or at least ignored, there are few, um, very few legal protections for them. In Jordan, if a woman is afraid her family wants to kill her, she can go check herself into a local prison but she can't check herself out. The only person who can is a male relative, who could frequently be the person who's threatening her life. Um, those who kill for honor are almost never punished, um, and like I said, in the rare instances that it makes it to court, they're sentenced to about one to three years. Um, so Hannah Jelani, who was her attorney who witnessed this murder, um, has done a case study of 150 of these cases, and only in eight did the judges reject the argument that the women were killed for honor and that that was acceptable. All of the other 142 cases were let off or given reduced sentences. Part of what supports this is the idea of women as property. Women are vulnerable to this type of violence and cruelty whenever they're considered the property of the males and their families. This happens irrespective of their class, ethnic, or religious groups. Um, the owners of the property are seen as having the right to decide its fate. Another thing that we have seen a trend um, rising in is dowry deaths or bride burning. More than 5,000 women are killed in India every year because their dowries were considered insufficient. This usually takes per place in the first seven years of the marriage because dowries are usually paid out over time. There's almost always extreme abuse and cruelty coming from the husband and the husband's family up, leading up to the murder. Acid attacks are another common form of punishment for failure to comply or conform with societal standards. They're intended to cause permanent disfigurement to shame the woman for things like refusing a marriage proposal or talking back to her husband. Um, we've also heard these honor killings called crimes of passion in some countries. Um, this is particularly prevalent in Central and South America, uh, that men would get a reduced uh, sentence or get off. They would call it a crime of passion and reduce their sentence. As adults, women are susceptible to domestic violence, um, battering during their, their pregnancy, which can result in intentional or unintentional miscarriages, being coerced into criminal activity, 
Um, once again, prostitution falls under this category. I think when we think of prostitutes, usually we think of them like the media portrays them, which is like this young single woman. Most of the women in my group are married. A lot of times their pimps are their husbands. Almost all of them have children. That's what it looks like in reality. Um, there's exploitation of household labor. They could be exposed to sexual harassment. They're susceptible to being infected with STDs or HIV. Um, a lot of the women that are, that are exposed to a lot of these other forms of violence, like domestic violence or FGM, there are higher rates of sexual, sexually transmitted infections. Uh, they're susceptible to people kidnapping or killing their children. They're also susceptible to murder, um, which is, can be called intimate homicide or a femicide by their, when it's done by their partner. Um, and they're also susceptible to victim blaming and rejection by their community. A lot of times when women have experienced violence or trauma, if they tell anyone, they are seen as the bad guy. And in some countries, like I said, they could even be punished by death for being raped. Um, so domestic violence is one of the things that they could experience. It's a pattern of coercive um, control and power over another person. It isolates the person who's being abused and can suppress their inner strength, feelings of self-worth, and the ability to make personal choices. Often people experience, experiencing abuse feel responsible for the abuse. Some types of abuse that women and children could be exposed to are physical violence, sexual abuse that can include marital rape, being forced to watch and imitate pornographic acts, infidelity. Infidelity because if there's an agreement that people are going to be faithful to each other and you go out and have unprotected sex and you can bring back sexually transmitted infections to your partner, that's pretty abusive. That's a violation of somebody's body, right? Um, emotional and psychological intimidation, verbal abuse and threats, stalking, which is getting so much easier with technology, isolation from friends and family, economic control, destruction of personal property, animal cruelty, using children as pawns, and male privilege. Victims of domestic violence are in all racial, economic, educational, and religious backgrounds. They occur in heterosexual and same-sex relationships between married and unmarried partners, between current and former partners, and between other family and household members. Um, like I said, a woman is seen as an extension of that family's property in a lot of countries, so sometimes it's not just the husband. It's the husband's whole family. Sometimes it's her family of origin as well. We see that even in our country. <laughs> Some of the people who come to our domestic violence shelter are being abused by their families or their in-laws, not just their partner. Communities that this happens in, it affects every community in every country, regardless of the ethnic group, culture, or background. It happens to people of all ages, income levels, faith, sexual orientation, gender, and education levels. Uh, domestic violence is not a family problem. It's not a private matter. It's not a fight. It's not a momentary loss of temper or caused by drugs or alcohol. An abuser is not out of control. They choose the tactics of violence repeatedly to gain power and control. Exposure to domestic violence can traumatize children and destroy their ability to feel safe in the world, as well as cause them to feel responsible for the abuse. Some of the things that older women, once they get to be elder, 
um, could be exposed to are physical abuse by their adult children or caretakers, exploitation for household labor or child care, withholding health care or medication, demeaning widowhood, including an inability to inherit land or wealth, murder or expected suicide of widows, including widow burning, burying widows alive with their deceased husbands, and sati. The status of widows in many societies has been precarious because the death of husbands removes their primary source of economic well-being as well as the control over their sexuality. In some societies, suicide or murder is seen as the natural solution to this problem. Most societies have evolved some mechanisms to control the social and sexual relationships of widows. The burning or burying of them occurs in many places but has been documented in modern times in Asia and the Middle East. In India, this attitude is represented in a practice known as sati, which translates to pure or chaste. It's the practice of self-immolation, which means they set themselves on fire so that they can remain pure and only have had sex with their husband, because there's no way they could survive in the world without him, so they, killed, they set themselves on fire. Um, and this is art. There's actually a temple built to honor the women who practice sati, because that's seen as being very honorable, um, to just kill yourself instead of leaving yourself susceptible to other men. So why does all this violence against women persist? <laughs> They're all kind of interrelated. Um, they all have to do with the attitudes globally that men have more importance than women do, right? Every culture in the world still reinforces it, including ours, okay? How does that happen in gender roles and family dynamics? And like I said, we see this everywhere, but we see this even in our society. Um, think about most weddings that happen in the United States. A woman wears a white dress, right, to show that she's pure. Her father gives, to, gives her to another man to take care of her. Um, usually the father is seen as the head of the household. Men still make more money, right? Um, it's reinforced by social ties. If women decide to step outside of this, even other women, and all their ties in society say, this isn't okay. You have to conform to the standard of what we've decided womanhood is supposed to look like. The culture, this is so you know, vast, um, but it could be everything from religion, and every, once again, every religion kind of reinforces that. And so sometimes we need to be mindful of who's telling us how to practice the religion, because <laughs> a lot of times it was men who wanted power. Um, and when we think about all of these things are kind of about men's power over women, um, we just need to be careful of kind of what we accept. Also, the media. I mean, that's huge in our culture, even the way that women are betrayed in the media. Um, if you guys ever get a chance to see um, Jackson Katz, who's a pretty famous director, uh, made a movie called Tough Guys, with guys spelled G-U-I-S-E, um, and talks about how Men being tough has gotten so much more important since the women's equality movement started. And if you look at kind of like the old black and white gangster movies, um, they used to have these teeny little guns <laughs> that they just held in their hand. And kind of over time, um, the guns have gotten bigger and bigger, and actually the men, who are supposed to be the heroes, right, and they're all violent, they've gotten bigger and bigger, where even their bodies are part of the weapon. And women in movies in the media have kind of gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, like literally taking up less visual space. Um, institutions, once again, who's reinforcing this? Um, laws are reinforcing this. When people go try to seek help from the police, 
from the court system. Um, if institutions are reinforcing these attitudes, how can people change them, right? It, kind of, it needs to change in those systems as well. And then individual barriers. Just because someone is a victim, it doesn't mean that they don't, they don't have other issues. So they might have addictions. They might be, you know, living in poverty. They might have limited education, limited skills. They may have disabilities. So all those things can affect mm -hmm. someone's ability. They advocate for themselves, right? <laughs> so I know all this is really, really depressing, <laughs> right? So is there, is there hope? Um, well, we have seen some, some trends changing, right? In South Korea, it's gone the other way in terms of infanticide. The populations are getting more balanced. And there are tons of organizations that are aware of this. Short-term technology has kind of hurt the movement to end violence because it's able, pimps are able to network. Um, this is something that I learned from the women in my group. Sometimes when we see that face on a milk carton, it might be a pimp trying to find one of their girls. Um, you know, they, ne they network online. Um, we know that even in this country, when, some, when a girl runs away from home, or a boy runaways, 80% of them within 72 hours, so in three days' time, are approached by a pimp. Four out of five runaways. So they know where to find them, and there's a network and they sell to each other, and they, should, they move them around even from state to state here. That's going on at a global level. There's all this networking. Um, but there's also networking of people who are trying to fight these things now. I think that that happens slower. Unfortunately, people who are trying to do the wrong thing tend to be faster and see how they can use those systems. But people who are trying to do the right thing are now using those systems to share information, to put global pressure on some countries to change their laws or to address some injustices that are going on. Um, and we're not the victims of our culture. We are creators of culture. Every minute of every day, we're creating our culture. Um, so what, what can we do? <laughs> because I don't expect everyone to jump on a plane um, and go to these other countries and start you know, fighting um, injustices in other countries. That's not realistic. But there are things that we can do every day in the decisions that we make, particularly in this, in this country, the way that we spend money, because money is power. And so we tell people, what we believe in and what we support by how we spend our money. Also, we can take a look at our own relationships. How do we treat people? Do we use any kind of, any kind of oppression? Because there's no hierarchy of oppressions. They're all interlinked and they all support each other. So if we ever um, use gender, use race, use sexuality, um, use money, use any other kind of power over another person, we're supporting that. So we need to take a look at ourselves and how we support that, um, because we can change it in our own communities. And now that the world is so interconnected, the way that we communicate and the way that we interact with other people um, starts to inform other people. We do that even at the shelter. We call it modeling. <laughs> so it's you, you be that person that you think other people how they should act, and then you hope that other people will follow suit. Um, what other groups are you a part of? Are you part of a religious community? Can you, can you, you know, work within your religious community just to say that that's not okay? Can you say that among your peer group if things happen, that that's just not okay? Um, once again, how do you spend your money? Is it on movies? Is it on music? Is it on um, anything that kind of supports the theory that one group has power over another? And then what will you do with the opportunities that you're given? You're all in college here. <laughs> um, I was talking to a few people before, and I know that, every, you know, you all have plans for your careers. 
So if you're going to be a teacher, if you're going to be a police officer, if you're going to, whatever it is, how can you use this information um, in the way that you treat people? You know, can you choose to not take power over someone else, right? Can you do things in a respectful way? Um, because that's, that's the way that we change things, is just one step at a time. So it doesn't, sometimes we hear all these horrible things, we just kind of push it out of our minds. It's like, wow, that's overwhelming. It's horrible, I can't change it all, so I can't deal with it. Um, but if we could all just take small steps, um, that's how change starts. So be that change. <laughs> Thank you. Are there any questions for me? a comment about sometimes just being a voice when people don't have a voice. Um, we know statistically, I know from working with um, trauma victims of domestic and sexual um, violence, we know the difference between a child who then grows up, their ability to thrive and just kind of survive in the world. So that means that they're not going to become an abuser themselves. Um, you know, they're not going to be prevented from getting an education or from having healthy relationships. The difference is only two people, we know statistically, two people <laughs> that showed them that life could be a little bit different. So yeah, it really doesn't take um, a lot, that, and it could really make a big difference, for sure. Any other questions or comments? No? <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> oh, sorry. That sometimes happens. The question was, do the children who are being trafficked end up being the traffickers? Um, that definitely happens. Um, I know even small scale that some of the women who are now in my prostitution group um, have been, um, they call it like the house mothers um, or things like that, because unfortunately it's human nature to want power. And so if the only way we see is having power is power over other people, if we're not kind of exposed to alternatives, then yes, sometimes that happens. So sometimes those kids who are trafficked then become the recruiters. Um, or then become the people who are, yeah, engaging in the trafficking. Definitely. Um, so, so the question was asked, how can, we, how can we decide how to spend our money and to make sure that we're not supporting um, these things? One of the main things is not, and I know that, that our society really accepts this, but to not engage, especially for our men, in prostitution, in going to strip clubs, um, in purchasing pornography. Um, all those dollars, a lot of that is tied up in the trafficking industry, um, and a lot of those women are forced to do those things. Um, there are lots of sites that you can check out. Um, the UN has links to some sites. The Department of Justice has links to some sites. Um, there are a lot of organizations. Even if you just start Googling, you know, where, where can I buy um, 
where how do I know that this wasn't made by, with child labor, right? Like you can Google that and get a list of different organizations that have resources for that. Um, there are even resources online where you can, every purchase that you make, like you can link to Overstock or Amazon or Target or Kohl's or a whole slew of stores if you do your shopping online, and 5% of the proceeds will go to support a charity. So that's another way if you're doing online shopping anyway, do it through those sites because then the money goes to help um, support different charities of your choice. Any other questions? No? <laughs> all right. Thank you all for coming. Real quick advertisement. October 12th, we change gears for the one book, and we talk about the future of journalism um, here in the library. Another uh, lecturer coming in. So uh, please come if you can, October 12th. And also remember, November 8th and 9th, Roxana Sabari will be on campus. I hope you can come. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.